Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Start with a full serving of skill. Mix in a large amount of flexibility. Add a pinch of sass, a dollop of drive, cloak, and a desire to stay out of the spotlight. Mix well with a colorful and ambitious family. Do not serve with beans. The end. Let's talk about Zephyr Wright. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1942, the world was at war and would be for another three years. The nylon, not silk, parachute and the airplane ejection seat were both successfully tested. Comic strip character Archie Andrews debuted as the star of his own comic book. The movies Bambi, Casablanca, and Woman of the Year premiered. The Glenn Miller Orchestra was awarded the very first gold record for Chattanooga Choo Choo. And Bing Crosby's song White Christmas was released. A month before her family went into hiding, Anne Frank received a diary for her 12th birthday. Carol King, Stephen Hawking, Muhammad Ali, Barbara Streisand, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Ross, Aretha Franklin, and Paul McCartney were born. Lucy Maud Montgomery died. And in 1942, a Texas cook named Zephyr took a job with a family that would not only lead her to the highest kitchen in the land, but also to become a voice for civil rights. Zephyr Black, or... Blackman was born on Sunday in 1915 in Harrison County, Texas, the second child in her family, which included an older brother named Frank and at least four half siblings. We <laughs> we have conflicting dates on her birthday. Um, I have some birthday parties being held in the White House for her in September. And I have a historian from her area that's got her in March. So there you go. Why would you have birthday parties in September? Yeah, don't know. <laughs> it's, oh, I just thought about this because what? my son's half birthday, he was born in March and my son's half birthday is literally in September. Do you think they could be that far ahead of their time? Oh my. I think Man. the answer is no. Well, if there was other <laughs> birthdays around, you know, if there was other birthdays in the family around Zephyr's. Her mother seems to be either the oldest daughter of her grandparents or one of the middle daughters. Why do we think so? Because Zephyr told an interviewer once that, quote, I didn't know very much about my mother until I was eight or nine years old. You see, she was raised by her maternal grandparents, Tom and Maria McKenzie, and some of the grandparents' daughters still appear in the 1920 census at their house with her. But there are three daughters that are missing, Mary, Elbertha, and Annie. So you think I could just pop forward 10 more years and settle the mystery, but alas, no such luck. Zephyr's mother and father separated when she was about four months old and her mother moved away to New Orleans. So here's life at Grandma and Grandpa's. That's what it was. I wish we knew more because I would really like to know if I had one question to ask on this whole story, why did they name her Zephyr? It's not appearing on any top 1000 baby name lists going back as far as 1900. It's the Greek god of the Western wind. It's a beautiful name. It's just so unusual. I just really wish I knew. So it's not exactly the Jennifer of the 1970s, but this name is surprisingly common among African-American young ladies of the time. In fact, one of the founders of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority that we just talked about in the Mary Terrell episode was named Zephyr, and it's spelled 20 different ways. 
<laughs> there is a town named Zephyr, Texas, which actually might be the source. Oh. Um, a search engine meltdown. Like nine kinds of airplanes, video games, at least one train, a whole bunch of scientific discoveries, and a Marvel comic book character. <laughs> which I'm going to guess was not it. <laughs> no. And despite all of those, I think Zephyr is a fabulous baby name. If you're looking, though, you'll have to be prepared to spell it for the rest of your child's life. Our Zephyr, in fact, in the 1920 census was spelled Z-I-T-H-E-R, which is not that close and makes searching very difficult. <laughs> Yes, it did. Tom and Maria were farmers, and while farm kids usually help out in the field, little Zephyr may have had the desire to help out picking cotton or any other crop, but she had a strong feeling that kept her from it. She was afraid of worms. <laughs> It's called verimophobia, and according to fearof.net, it's rooted in a fear of unhygienic conditions, which actually suits her well for her future career. <laughs> I love that. So she had the usual farm chores, but I'm wondering if her lack of help outside meant proportionally her time inside. I would think so. Yeah. is uh, Yeah. So she gravitated toward the kitchen and I can just imagine it. I can hear the screen door slamming. What I would not give to take a deep breath in my own country grandma's kitchen. Pinto beans and ham on the back burner, pie in the oven, the sound of the coffee percolator. Uh-huh. You guys. <laughs> I think we might need to set the stage about Marshall, Texas, the nearest town to where she lived for just a moment. And that'll make a little sense of some of the dynamics a little bit later. During the Civil War, Marshall was one of the places that slaveholders forcibly relocated their enslaved people to right ahead of the Union Army in order to prevent their liberation. It was called refugeeing. Over 25,000 of them by the end of the war were taken to Marshall, Texas. And even afterward, we've talked about theory versus practice. This was not one of those places that accepted the outcome of the Civil War. The white citizens, quote, reclaimed it from the Union. They chose to disregard any law they found inconvenient when it came to race relations. However, the concentration of African Americans here had a surprising result. Marshall, Texas became the site of two historically black colleges, Bishop College and Wiley College, which would later be absolutely instrumental to the civil rights movement in later years. So back at you. Yeah. Confederacy. <laughs> Around the age of 11 or 12, Zephyr went to live with her long lost mother in town. We cannot speculate how that went emotionally because Zephyr never talked about it. But a big change around middle school age is counterindicated, classically. We do know that Zephyr went to the Marshall Central High School, still there, go Mavericks. She was presumably the class of 32 or 33. But the thing about this high school was it was one of the first African-American high schools to earn an A rating by the state of Texas. Impressive enough. Their theme was hearts, hands, and mind. And in addition to academics like civics, history, math, literature, physics, botany, and Latin, the school had a large practical element. There were carpentry classes, open only to boys though, sorry. 
cooking, <laughs> sewing, blacksmithing, also boys, printing, agriculture, and music classes. Local businessmen came in to teach subjects. That's what my son's school does. There was an mm-hmm. engineering firm that was holding a race. <laughs> they got the engines in a box and then they had to make the rest of the car. They were holding a race, which of course is canceled. I know. No more race car. Well, Wiley College professors and students also offered tutoring and mentoring. So it was kind of like a giant family and their goal is to help their students just move into the world successfully. And I, I thought that was very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so modern. Yes. You know, in, in a time that they're reading, writing, and arithmeticing, these kids are getting a solid education. And Zephyr continued her solid education by going straight across the street to <laughs> Wiley College. And at Wiley, their home economics department was renowned for its facilities. Um, its labs were up to date. They had a functioning dining hall to practice in. This was the time where home economics was being treated as more of a scientific profession. If you recall our Lillian Gilbreth podcast, including calculations and projections and health and cleanliness, and it was a whole science. And I can't say definitively, but it seems like Zephyr was either intermittently a student or was simultaneously working as a domestic There were a number of years before she graduated, and maybe she had to work to pay for her school. Yeah, I was wondering, too, because by the time her story really picks up in 1942, she's 27 years old, and she's either just finishing college or entering her her last semester. Again, a little fuzzy, but she's at the end of her college experience. Like a lot of people, myself included, Zephyr's college experience really changed her perception of the world. Her eyes were open to what was happening outside of the bubble that was Marshall. She said, quote, this was the first beginning of my realizing what segregation was all about. I had come up with the idea and this was the way of life and this is the way it was going to be. And there was nothing I could do about it. But after I went to school, then I began to learn that things were changing and things could change. It really gave me a different outlook on life altogether. Her professors were very impressed by her intelligence and her work ethic and her performance. She definitely made a name for herself on campus. And it might have been helpful that she was there for a number of years also. The wife of U.S. Congressman Lyndon B. Johnson came to Wiley College on a mission. Claudia Taylor Johnson was her name, but history knows her as Lady Bird Johnson, which reminds me of Skeeter Phelan from The Help. <laughs> That's cute, though. But the reason that she's called Ladybird is adorable. She was the baby of the family, the only girl. She had two older brothers, a very wealthy family. And when her nurse looked at her, she said, you're as pretty as a ladybird. And that name stuck. And Ladybird equals Ladybug? I guess. Do you think if they didn't have spots, we would think ladybugs were so cute or would we crush them like all other bugs? I don't even know. (laughs) Ladybird was from the Marshall, Texas area herself, and her college-educated cook and housekeeper had just left to start a career as a teacher. So Mrs. Johnson was here to ask about a new hire. She needed someone that was up to the challenge of a high-pressure workplace with a somewhat variable schedule. And I'm not sure how she put this exactly, but she needed someone with a tough skin 
to deal with her husband. So there's a lot of esoteric requirements. Sure, you need to know how to cook, but... But you need to know specifically how to cook the foods that my husband likes, and you have to know how to cook them whenever he comes home, which is probably not going to be six o'clock. That's what I was saying. They probably put it as variable schedule. Yes. Ladybird was looking for a cook who could handle not only the family meals, but the next night she could make a big party dinner. And the night after that, she could make, you know, dinner snacks for Canasta because the couple liked to entertain quite a bit. They didn't want somebody who said clocked in at a certain time and left. They needed somebody extraordinarily flexible. The faculty knew just the person. Imagine showing up to a university and getting a unanimous recommendation which is what Lady Bird received. Zephyr was thrilled and surprised to get a chance like this, traveling to Washington, D.C. and cooking for famous people. She'd kind of seen her life rolling out ahead of her, like a carpet. Graduate college, work for a white family in Marshall, maybe have her own family if she was lucky, the end. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been much scope for the imagination. There's not too much to look forward to other than what is expected. This Mm -hmm. is radical. The interview went great. And to seal the deal, Zephyr's aunt, or aunt if you're Susan, (laughs) had worked for Lady Bird's notoriously difficult father. It was a whole package of mutual benefits. I love that their interview was only 15 or 20 minutes and that Lady Bird was willing to drive out to Zephyr's house to have it. And Zephyr said, I was quite elated. (laughs) Now, here's a question for you. Did she graduate from Wiley? Because I think they left. Yeah, that's what the big question mark is as far as was she in her last semester or was she already done? Um, It's not clear. Some sources say that she was looking for a job to finish funding her college education. And some say that she was a college graduate looking for her career job. So we really don't know. Hmm. All right. Well, Lady Bird drove Zephyr and another African-American new hire, a, a gentleman, From Marshall to Washington, D.C., that's about 1,300 miles, give or take. So, of course, you're going to have to stop to eat, to sleep, to run the gauntlet, as it turns out. Lady Bird pulled up to the famous Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, and asked for three rooms. We have a room for you, said the desk clerk, but not for those. Those! Points to Zephyr and the man. We work a man, but we don't sleep him. I am horrified. They're right there! Yeah. Well, Ladybird was also horrified. She turned on her heel and said over her shoulder, that's nasty of you. And she just left. Now, the Peabody now, obviously, it's a lovely hotel. <laughs> it's still there. And they obviously are not segregated any longer. I'm confused by this. She's a daughter of the South who had to know the score, kind of. I guess it was worth a try. Maybe this was one of the places. Zephyr did say later, Ladybird was very good about finding places they could stay mm-hmm. um, and where everyone could eat. And Zephyr's like, I would rather not go if I wasn't wanted. I didn't want her to convince people to let me in. I would rather just not go in, you know, even if Ladybird had the magic touch, which is like self-respect. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that that that's nasty of you was her trying to make the woman feel bad because there was another incident where they had stopped at a hotel. Ladybird was able to procure the rooms and Zephyr was in the room talking with Ladybird when someone from the hotel knocked on the door bringing towels or something. And Ladybird opened the door and the employee looked in and saw Zephyr, made a face. Ladybird grabbed the towels, slammed the door and said, thank you. So what you're saying is that Ladybird 
left out the fact that she was accompanied by a woman of color? Yes. Yes. Oh, I see. Well, if Zephyr had known that, she might not have stayed there. Maybe not. Yeah, because she didn't like that. So, okay. They arrived in Washington, D.C., and Lady Bird showed Zephyr around what she'd be doing, her basement bedroom. Later, Lady Bird admitted that, oof, that accommodation was sort of insulting and rudimentary. Looking back, it was a yikes. Yeah, she did feel bad. She said Zephyr deserves something that was 10 times nicer than that room was. But she had made it up as nice as she could. You know, it was a basement room. So she put lots of lamps in and colorful pictures on the wall. But Lady Bird tried, but she realized that she had come up short. Yeah, it really embarrassed her later. But at the time, here's your bedroom. Here's the kitchen. Oh, by the way, we're having a dinner party tomorrow. Here's the menu. (laughs) There's jumping in the deep end for you. (laughs) Zephyr remembers getting the meal together, getting the house all nice, serving, and then waiting in the kitchen for a verdict from Mrs. Johnson that just never came. She went out to clear. Mrs. Johnson was not there. Um, she's washing dishes and it was not until after everyone had left and she was still tidying up that Mr. Johnson, the giant, who she's never met, came in special to tell her how great the food was and introduce himself. That is a weird first day of work, (laughs) I think. She wanted some guidance. You know, anytime you start a new job, you want your boss to give you a little guidance of what they're looking for. She didn't get it, but apparently she nailed it. (laughs) So what she got instead was full trust. Well, the Johnsons believed correctly that entertaining was the way to network in good old Washington, D.C., and they did even more of it when they moved to a center entry colonial on 30th Place Northwest, which is still there, by the way. Zephyr got a new, nicer room on the third floor. And oh, did Washington, D.C. love Zephyr's cooking. Her Southern comfort food brought all the senators to the yard. She had a list of specialty dishes that reads just like a menu from your favorite Southern restaurant, cornbread and fried chicken, spoon bread, which if you don't know what that is, it's a hybrid custard cornbread that you bake in a casserole and you serve with a spoon. It's not finger food like a, like a piece of cornbread would be. She was famous for her popovers. She was famous for her, wait for it, peach ice cream. We last talked about peach ice cream, I, 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 in the Typhoid Mary episode, and that did not turn out well. No, but when I read this peach ice cream, she's famous for it. I had to find her recipe and I had to make it. And so I looked around and I finally found it, but it says Lady Bird Johnson's peach ice cream recipe. But we know that as soon as Zephyr stepped into that kitchen, Lady Bird was done in the kitchen. She did not cook. She did a lot of things. She did a lot of things well, but cooking wasn't one of them. So this was Zephyr's recipe and I made it. And now it's Susan's recipe. It was a perfect ratio of heavy cream to milk in a custard base. (laughs) I have a question. Has anyone ever had commercial peach ice cream? Because I swear to you, the only times I've ever had peach ice cream have been, well, I don't know if this dates me or whatever, but like the grindy, you know, little canister in the salt thing that people do on the porch outside Uh in the summer is literally the only peach ice cream I've ever had. I just never think, oh, you know, butter brickle, Rocky Road, peach. Is it there? I don't know. And I make it myself, but mine is a lovely attachment to my stand mixer. (laughs) No crackly ice or salt or anything. Mine, you have to keep the bowl in the freezer for 24 hours. And that's impossible right now because finding freezer space is (laughs) pretty tight in there. I did a lot of cooking 
for this episode, a lot of Zephyr's recipes, and I found her recipe for popovers. I hadn't had popovers in a million years. I don't know what a popover is. Oh, it's like... um, It's like a Yorkshire pudding. You know, when you have roast beef with Yorkshire pudding, it's an egg flour batter and you put it in the hot grease and stick it in the oven and it puffs up kind of like a souffle, except it's more bready. I'm so scared about when you said put it in the grease. I like felt queasy. Oh, okay. Well, in a popover, (laughs) you heat the pan with butter in it. And with a Yorkshire pudding, you heat it in the hot um, grease from from the beef, from the roast beef. I'm sure it's very good. They used to eat dripping in bread too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not healthy at all, which is probably why I haven't made it in years. But my family was a little upset. Wow, why didn't you make these before? Oh, I'm so glad. I know. So the powerful of Washington also loved popovers, etc. And they left the Johnson's table with a happy plate and a full head and likely some deals made over the coffee and dessert. She was locally very famous, and I'm sure if there was a <laughs> a lady present that had a little more nerve than the rest, I don't know how many people would try to poach her, but I bet she had some poaching attempts. Oh, I am sure she did. Yeah. Sure she did. Well, Lyndon's brother Sam once said that Zephyr's cooking made you wish you had two stomachs. I said that to a vendor in New York who gave me a banh mi hot dog that was so good that I'm like, I wish that I could eat another one. I wish I had more room. I want (laughs) another one so badly. And he just beamed at me. Uh, Yeah. So I hope somebody told Zephyr that because that is a really good compliment when someone's like, oh, I want to eat twice as much as this. It's so good. (laughs) Well, Zephyr... Never really 100% knew how many people were going to show up and had to devise ways of being prepared for just about anything. You know, have hors d'oeuvres ready, have some things frozen, have some sauces made and stored, you know, like a lot of tricks of the trade that caterers use, she had to use. And she had to also come up with ways to deal with the mercurial, uh, difficult, shall we say, master (laughs) of the house. The thing about him, she decided, was that you had to have an answer ready. If you paused, he would yell, what are you, speechless? And as she put it later, once he said that, he was about to take you down the country. (laughs) And I love that expression, down the country, but I don't like the way that both Zephyr and Ladybird kind of had to build up this defense mechanism to keep his temper in check. i don't like that at all. Now, Ladybird's father was just the same. So she'd had a lifetime of experience with a difficult man. But Zephyr had to learn to be quick, be decisive, stand up for yourself and know your stuff. And maybe that's just good advice for regular old life. So what'd you learn this week? I learned, or I should say, I relearned how to make yeast bread. Apparently, I'd lost the touch in the many years that it's been since I did that. But a great place to learn new and relearn old things is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for people like us, creative people, curious people. It helps us explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and really just get lost in the creativity. It's always a great time to be inspired and express yourself. But right now, it seems extremely important. 
I've learned that I can help ease a little bit of my anxiety by taking a class and learning something new and a class that maybe helps me express what I'm feeling through creative self-discovery, like journaling or drawing or writing. But not just for you, maybe for your teen. Is your teen like mine and on TikTok all the time? There's a course for iPhone filmmaking that they might be interested in. Right now, I'm taking a class called Design Great Stuff. I knew very little about graphic design, but I'm learning every day something new. You can explore your creativity and get two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. You can get started and join today by heading to Skillshare. That's just one word. Skillshare.com slash chicks for two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes at Skillshare.com slash chicks. Well, this story starts out as a, let's call it, livelier version of the help. Zephyr herself had a temper that was described as, quote, peppery, spicy, maybe a good fit for LBJ, who himself liked a little standoff or dust up each and every day. At the very beginning, Zephyr wasn't sure she was ever going to get along with Lyndon at all. The transition was very gradual, but by the time that she was established as a member of the family, she thought of him as a brother. That's how close they got. But at the beginning here, Zephyr is a cog in the machine. She's a vital cog, but it doesn't seem like family yet. Lady Bird and Lyndon had two daughters, Linda in 1944 and Lucy in 1947, which both often fell to Zephyr's charge. And... They got very, very close. And you know you can love them, but this is a lot. And they are not exactly your family, not yet. For whatever <laughs> reason, both Zephyr and Ladybird leave this very vague. Zephyr left the family to go to California to get married, Ladybird said, somewhere around the age of 35. And you know what? Good for her. Ladybird hired a couple named Jean and Helen Williams that moved in upstairs. But then the story is told a couple of different ways, but about a year later, either LBJ heard through the grapevine that Zephyr was back in Washington, D.C., and someone else was benefiting from her fabulousness, <laughs> which can't be tolerated. <laughs> or the Johnsons decided that they really couldn't live without Zephyr, and they went out to California to get her and bring her home. But in this version of the story, by the time they got to California, Zephyr had left on her own to go back to Washington. So... Either way, eventually, LBJ found Zephyr and persuaded her to come back. Please, he said, with flattery and the application of more money. It's amazing how those two <laughs> things work. Um, not to mention an old employer thinking enough of you to track you down. I mean, that's pretty flattering it all is. in itself. Helen Williams, who I believe had been housekeeper cook, sort of transitioned into Lady Bird's personal aide and secretary. She did not hold with cooking, Lady Bird said, which <laughs> I took to mean that she was not a good cook. <laughs> no. But she was a valuable, valuable member of the family also, ultimately. But nobody can make those homemade tortillas the way that Zephyr did. I guess. You know, Zephyr's a high standard, I understand. So <laughs> I had read one story where there were certain recipes that she 
surprisingly, didn't know how to make a lot of Tex-Mex food. And she learned on her own in Washington how to make these dishes the way that the Johnson family liked them. I just don't know, I guess, how common a tortilla was in society as a whole. Well, you'd think it would be common in Texas. It was definitely a common enough street food. There were tortilla and bean stands all over Texas, but is it something that your average middle-class family would make themselves or would you buy stacks of them from the experts? Like chips are very common now, but it's a very rare person that's going to make their own chips. I don't know. Oh, interesting. I just don't know how common it was. So during legislative session breaks, of course, the Johnsons would go back home to Texas and the family, like the Crawleys of Downton Abbey, sometimes would send the servants ahead to get the house ready. Jean Williams would drive, Helen's husband, uh, Zephyr in the backseat with the family's beagle. And it was already horrible for them to try to find somewhere that they themselves can stay. We saw that before. But pet friendly too, in the pre-dog sweater <laughs> Instagram era. No way. No way. These factors are not all going to come together. It was horrible. And a couple of different trips of this and Zephyr put her foot down. No more would she take the dog. And she had to just explain why. I mean, it took her explaining why to get the Johnsons to understand. She had to lay it out. We, we pull up. We have finally found this place in the green book. It, it doesn't look too sketchy. It looks clean. They have rooms available. They can feed us. And then we pull out the dog. And nine times out of ten, we're turned away. And finally, they did understand. The Johnsons ended up taking the dog. At least they took one thing off Gene and Zephyr's plate. No more dog. Here's a more harsh lesson for everybody. Zephyr fell outside the Johnson's house, icy sidewalk maybe, I think, and hurt herself very badly. And one of the neighbor ladies ran outside with blankets and covered her up and called for an ambulance. But when the ambulance company found out that their patient was, and I quote, colored, they refused to come. Similar to the way that Wilma Mankiller was choking and her father called the hospital and the ambulance wouldn't come to her neighborhood either. Uh... Yeah, to say that's horrifying. It took Lady Bird Johnson freaking out at people and name dropping on the phone to get them to take Zephyr to get her broken leg fixed. It was her femur. That's like the biggest bone in your body. Ugh. Of all the things to break. I mean, that sounds extremely painful. And then to have that humiliation on top of it. Mm -hmm. Like your employer has to scream at someone on the phone to take you to the hospital. They were afraid to move her. She was in so much pain. You can't just pop someone in the backseat of your car and, you know, go hell for leather around the corners and get to the hospital. So anyway, that was one incident. And Helen Williams, the other employee in the house, broke down at Mr. LBJ himself after she had tried to take Linda and Lucy to the movies. And she had been harshly turned away right in front of the children with name calling and everything. Yeah, in Washington, D.C., which, as we have talked about before, is a pretty southern city, despite being geographically, seemingly in the north. As horrible it is as it is, I don't think that Lady Bird and Lyndon would have seen this kind of treatment if they hadn't been so close to Zephyr and Helen. They could hear anecdotes, but this is like a first person situation that they're involved in. Segregation is touching their lives in a way that they probably hadn't had it happen to them. I'm staggering through that, but I, 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 and I don't think they realized their privilege. So that is kind of a silver lining from it. So you're saying that 
perhaps walking into your own kitchen and seeing someone crying bitterly with her Mm -hmm. hands on her arms at the kitchen table might actually touch you in a way that some kind of anecdote told at dinner by your white friends doesn't have that same reach. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. They felt that anger, you know, not being able to get the ambulance and the anger for Helen being turned away and so harshly. Well, LBJ had spent the better part of his career blocking civil rights legislation. I'm sorry to enlighten everyone about that. He used the N-word a lot, even now, even with Zephyr and Jean and Helen in the house. But his creaky old ship was gradually changing direction, as was the wind of change in the United States as a whole. He often had senators over who were anti-civil rights. He's part of the Southern voting bloc. And Zephyr was later asked about that. One in particular, so racist. And the reporters are expecting something super juicy because it's after the fact. What's the harm? And all she'd say was about this senator, he was perfectly pleasant to me in this house. And he was a guest of Mr. Johnson. I didn't think about the politics of it so much. It's like harboring the enemy. Like, and what could you do? I doubt that she put the politics completely out of her head, but you have to compartmentalize, I guess, to some extent. Mm. So she might not have thought about the politics, or at least that's what she told the reporter, but she sure heard so much of what was happening in the other room. She was privy to conversations that I think would astonish America as a whole. She was privy to the arguments, to the raised voices, to the thumping on the table, to Mr. Johnson giving people the Johnson treatment, which is like, (laughs) I don't even know. It's like (laughs) towering uh, intimidation, Um, the silent treatment, the mocking smile, the encyclopedic memory for facts that he would pull out and throw on the table like a trump card. I think she had a window into the developments of the 50s and 60s that really no one else had. Amazing. No, I agree completely. So people in the black community, knowing her position in that house, would often ask her to tell Mr. Johnson things or ask him questions. And she would carefully pick her battles. She didn't get this far into a pretty great relationship with her difficult boss by coming at him every day with grievances. But she would watch the mood. She'd read the room and then she'd speak her piece. If he had questions for her, she'd just answer him honestly. And she became, willingly or not, one of his sounding boards. I'm not 100% sure how comfortable a position that was for her. But like so many other people of color we talk about, she kind of realized that she was in a unique position to make a difference. Mm -hmm. The wedding in California may not have worked out well, but in 1952, Zephyr did get married. She found her Mr. Wright. Sammy Wright. (laughs) Sorry. So the Wrights lived in. the. Um, they had these two rooms called the Carnation Rooms. I don't know. They're on the tour now. Um, <laughs> the Williams stayed in one and the Wrights stayed in the other. Everybody was a live-in. Um, Sammy became the chauffeur. This is the same year that Zephyr cooked a lunch for wives of senators and newlywed Jackie Kennedy, sure enough, ate crab salad in the Johnson's garage. <laughs> it was a converted garage. It wasn't like, you know, picnic tables with a saws and the tools right next to you. I know, but even decades later, Lady Bird was like, oh, it was the garage. I can't believe I entertained Jackie Kennedy, the most elegant woman in the world, in my garage. You know, (laughs) it's kind of funny. I kind of love it, though. Yeah, me too. That is a clash of cultures that will come up again 
funnily enough, in the White House. But for now, we're on the other foot, you know. (laughs) So when Zephyr was 40 years old, Lyndon Johnson had a heart attack, an almost fatal heart attack. The household was in an uproar for almost half a year. You thought he was in a bad mood before. You just wait until this man had to stop smoking three packs a day. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a lot of cigarettes, you know, and he lived on meat and potatoes and butter and desserts and cocktails and just physically running himself ragged. He was a heart attack waiting to happen. And when it did happen, unfortunately, on Lucy's eighth birthday, mm. he he was out of town on a bro weekend and Lady Bird rushed to the hospital to meet him to assess the situation. And the first person she called was Zephyr to say, look, this is bad. I'm going to have to stay here. You're going to have to take care of the kids and take care of the house. And she stayed with Lyndon for six full weeks in the hospital. So Zephyr, in addition to taking care of the kids and the house, had to go on this crash course on post-heart attack nutrition. She worked with a military doctor and came up with a plan and uh, read up on the latest wisdom Making heart-healthy meals, that's pretty easy. It's easy for us because we have the knowledge and we have all the stuff. She could do amazing things in an air fryer, but she didn't have that kind of technology. Sweet and low, it had only just begun to be marketed. Curiously, it was discovered in 1937 by a graduate student who was looking for fever reducers and instead stumbled upon sweet and low. And saccharin went back even farther. I fell into a rabbit hole, if you can't tell. Saccharin goes back to 1897. It was a man looking for new uses for uh, coal tar derivatives. How many random inventions were not invented because people didn't go out looking for things and have made mistakes? I know. She had to calculate fat and carbs and calories for all of his meals, like she needed one more thing to do. But she would make a note of them every day. She's trying to educate her employer also. You know, like, this is why we're doing this. And she called... The little pieces of paper she put under the plate with the count, love notes. So she'd always leave them a love note. And it was counted out so closely and she thought she was doing such a great job. But then she'd throw a party and she'd have to make separate food for Lyndon to eat and then the regular party fare. And when Lyndon was finished with what was on his plate, he wasn't known for his manners. He would just take it off somebody else's or go serve himself some more. So not only was she adapting his daily diet, but now she's adapting the recipes for parties, party food, where they're entertaining all these people to make those heart healthy and tasty to everyone. That man would eat the food off the plates of the people sitting right beside him at dinner. And he was so scary that people didn't say anything (laughs) about it. That is something else. So soon she had to re-engineer the whole menu because of his poor behavior and had to make clever substitutions that were invisible to the whole dinner party. And it's a testament to her training, her research, and her creativity that she kept her crown as the number one cook in Washington even after all of this. She even adapted his favorite recipe, Perdinalis River Chili. Pronunciation intentional. The suet had to come out. Sorry, I'm gagging. (laughs) You're the one that put dripping in a pan (laughs) and then put flour in it. But suet, it's like, all right. (laughs) Isn't suet just cooled down dripping? Uh, I think of like, you know, 
putting like bird seed on it and hanging it out for the birds. Yes, it is just fat. Also, a quick um okay, Spanish speakers, I know you're gonna get after me. It is spelled pedernales. It is. And if if you were saying it properly, that's what you would do. But Lyndon Johnson always called it Pernanalis. <laughs> that's from the area where he grew up and that's how he said it and that's how half of them say it now at the Pertinalis National Park. <laughs> so we're going to go with that. Also, it reminds me of when my son used to say fracas for breakfast and we still say it. So I have it in my heart to keep going with Pertinalis <laughs> River Chili. Would she, you have that for fracas? Sure. Pertinalis for fracas. <laughs> well, she had already had to adapt this once for the taste of Washington, D.C. because they're not so into the venison in the nation's capital. And it's also really hard to get. And she had already beefed it. And he was still a giant fan. So one more change. One more big step away from the original. But that's okay. We're good. That chili will become famous later. <laughs> so in addition to adapting his nutritional habits, Mr. Johnson continued to evolve philosophically. In his role as Senate Majority Leader, Johnson brought the Civil Rights Bill of 1957 to Congress. As we have talked about many times on this show, just the fact that the Civil War ended did not mean that the African-American populace was all of a sudden in clover. The South almost immediately started rolling back rights, adding restrictions. Practically speaking, at the time that Johnson brought this bill in 1957, only 20% of African-Americans were registered to vote in the United States. That's within living memory. Um, and largely because cities and states put restrictions that made it very difficult or impossible for them to vote and therefore also impossible for them to serve on juries because the jury pool was restricted to registered voters. Clever, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Not clever. I mean, it was clever, but not cool. So the bill passed both houses. Uh, it was turbulent. Wow. The opposition complained that the civil rights bill, quote, interfered in states' rights, and they made quick work of slapping some amendments on it that made it lose most of its teeth. The bill is listed as, quote, an act to provide the means of further securing and protecting the civil rights of persons within the jurisdiction of the United States. So it was a landmark bill, but it didn't have a lot of force at the time. You know, it Unfortunately, had a lot of loopholes, but LBJ came right home and asked Zephyr if she'd seen it. This thing I did. She hadn't. She said she'd been cooking the dinner like she literally heard him call it in his dining room. And I can't say the word the end bill. That's what he <laughs> called it in private. And so maybe I don't mind that she's not giving him his cookie because you know what, dude? Just do the good thing. Why do you have to be so bad behind the scenes? Kind of. Yeah. Usually I can try and see it the way other people see it, you know, look around and see if I can't see that. I just, it makes me sad. I mean, this was the biggest step since Reconstruction. It wasn't much. It was a baby step, but it was coming on the heels of Brown versus Board of Education. There's a lot of changes going on in civil rights law, but still I can't rationalize it in my head. So Zephyr had sort of had it with him, you know, a little bit. And I think she was letting him know, you know, him know she's not going to give him the gold star. Exactly. Although it was a great step forward and I appreciate your work, et cetera. But like, you know, 
<laughs> you can do better. So she'd had it with something else too. Taking his car down to Texas. Yeah. She's like, look, when we drive to Texas and I have to go to the restroom, I can't go like Bird and the girls. I'm not allowed to use the restroom. I have to go in the woods and squat. How does that make me feel? When it comes time to eat, she said, we can't go to restaurants. We have to eat out of a brown bag. And at night, Sammy sleeps in the front of the car with a steering wheel around his neck while I sleep in the back. We're not going to do it again, she said. She put her foot down. They were not going to travel to Texas anymore. Sure enough, she didn't. Well, not by highway. You can see her name on the passenger list of the presidential airplane when they got that far, by the way. (laughs) Gene Williams later said it, quote, made Mr. Johnson very angry when she said that. And Zephyr just said, I just wouldn't go. So we know who won. Because she didn't, in fact, go. And he didn't fire her. So the end, you know? That's right. That's right. Well, the Civil Rights Act of 1960 tightened up some of those loopholes in the previous bill. And Johnson had street cred on civil rights, though, even though he, again, literally asked his chauffeur, do you prefer to be referred to as boy or chief? And the guy's like, I would prefer to be called my name, which is Parker. And Johnson's like, nah, as long as you're black, that's not going to be an option. You know what is also extraordinarily sad is this information, what you're talking about right now, that didn't come out at the time. It was like the 1980s before people realized that when he said Negro in any uh, speech that was documented, he wasn't saying that. This information, how crude he was and his language, that didn't come out until well past his death. And I don't want to excuse his behavior at all, at all, while simultaneously, I want to tell you that his involvement in civil rights, I think, in a good way, broke up the Democratic Party for the last time. I mean, the issue of civil rights was so divisive that the people that were against civil rights started to leave and join the Republican Party. They couldn't handle it anymore. What has the Democratic Party become? And Lyndon Johnson, former denizen of the Southern Voting Bloc, was sort of leading the charge in the other direction. And for that, even despite his personal horribleness sometimes, practically speaking, he was working on a macro level to make things better. Maybe you just couldn't change a man's personality. I just don't know. I don't know how to reconcile those two things, those two Mm -mm. parts of him. In fact, people later said, I loved the Lyndon Johnson that fought so hard for civil rights, and I hated the man that called me an N. And I think both things could be held in the mind at once, you know? Hmm, Yeah. So I think we'll just have to decide that LBJ is like super bad and super good. Mr. Lyndon Johnson, super bad and super good, is now running for president. It's 1960. So Zephyr kept the house going as Mrs. Johnson went out campaigning. 
his civil rights record, again, was very divisive to a lot of voters. And this is the Democratic Party's final fracture. And Lady Bird has been insulted all over the South. They call her Black Bird because of her husband's record on civil rights. So let's just say it was an unsuccessful bid for the presidency. He became John Kennedy's running mate, and the two of them ran on a really progressive platform, whereas the Republican nominee, Richard Nixon, really just wanted to continue everything that Eisenhower had begun. So you have Kennedy and Johnson saying, let's go forward and do all these great things. And you have Nixon saying, we're doing great things now. Let's just keep doing those. And in the election, it was the closest victory in presidential history. But Zephyr Wright soon became the cook for the vice president of the United States. In their new status, they moved to a grander place, a mansion at 4040 52nd Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. I know this is supposedly moving on up professionally, but I wonder if the Senate is a more powerful place to be, actually. You know, day to day. Oh, the Senate majority leader has more power than the vice president does. It was more exciting for Johnson when he was a senator than when he was a vice president. And I'm going to put this very mildly. If you watch The Crown, you know what I'm talking about. But I am not sure that Kennedy and LBJ got along behind the scenes. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. I think Johnson had a ringside seat to all the behavior that the public didn't know about. And I think it was a little galling to him that the facade was being maintained when LBJ just kind of let it all out. And that's kind of what he believed in. Well, you know, he was also kind of living his life a little bit different. For instance, that Tony House that you were talking about him moving into, in that neighborhood, there were bylaws that said that the properties could not be occupied or sold to, quote, Negroes or any person or persons of Negro blood or extractions or to any person of the Semitic race, blood or origin, which racial discriminations shall be deemed to include Armenians, Jews, Hebrews, Persians and Syrians. Holy cow. But when Lyndon Johnson bought his house in this area, he had a signed legal affidavit said he's not bound by any of those covenants. So that's a step forward. In the Supreme Court case that struck down those covenants, and I am winging this, by the way, (laughs) um, three out of the nine Supreme Court justices had to recuse themselves because their property was subject to covenants like that. Not that they did the right thing by buying those properties in the first place, but at least they knew that they had a conflict of interest. And so that decision was unanimous to strike down those kind of restrictive covenants uh, across the nation. Part of the verbiage in it was that those rules, they said, were legally and morally unenforceable. So he made a statement with that. That Supreme Court case was actually a decision from 1948. But yet developers continued to slip these things in. It was as president that LBJ signed the 1968 Civil Rights Act, part of which is called the Fair Housing Act, that definitively struck all of those down and made those federally illegal. So another example of good Johnson. Good Johnson. That's right. 
Another example of Good Johnson was in 1963, there was a very famous March on Washington. It's officially called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 250,000 people, 80% of them were people of color. This is where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his speech. This is where Josephine Baker was standing right next to him. And Zephyr didn't feel it was appropriate for her to go, but she was very interested in what was happening. She watched it on television all day. Lyndon Johnson came back and this again, he's trying to bounce these ideas off of Zephyr. And he's like, did you see what was happening? Did you see that march? And she said, yes, yes, I did. And I guess she didn't give him enough enthusiasm because he's saying he was really happy with it. And quote, this is a step forward for your people. Okay. (laughs) I love that she's just not, you know, she gives it back to him when he steps out of line, but she's not like going, yes, sir, Mr. Johnson, this was wonderful. And I think it just goes back to learning how to manage him. Like he saw her interest. He Mm -hmm. saw how excited she was. He's got to know that we're not done. You know, I'm going to calmly say this is a great step forward, but we haven't crossed the finish line and I'm not going to pretend we did. Three years into his vice presidential term, Lyndon and Lady Bird had plans to go and meet the president and first lady at the ranch after they had visited Dallas. But as we know, that didn't happen. And on November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated And that very day, Lyndon Johnson was inaugurated as president of the United States on board Air Force One. We've all seen that picture before. Where Jackie Kennedy wanted to stand right beside him during his inauguration on that plane to show the nation that things were in good hands, that there has been a peaceful transition of power, and that the Kennedys believed in Lyndon Johnson and his ability to lead what became a very traumatized nation. Mm -hmm. So that is, wow, that's a hard start to a new job. If there ever was one, we thought Zephyr's was hard. Imagine being dumped in the deep end of that kind of job and having to allay the fears of an entire nation full of millions of people. So there, (laughs) that's his first endeavor. There was a delay of a couple of weeks while Jackie and her children stayed in the White House. Everyone kind of complained that she stayed there, but the Johnsons are like, let a woman grieve. I mean, my goodness, we have a perfectly good house. I can commute (laughs) for Mm -hmm. a few weeks. It's fine. You know, how dare you? Kind of. Um, The move to the White House, though was major for everyone. But for Zephyr, this is the opening of like a a tug of war, certainly a workplace full of weird tension. Jackie Kennedy had started out with her own family cook in the White House, but soon brought on a hoity-toity French chef named Monsieur Verdun. You know Julia Child's book? You know the the mood of Camelot and the fanciness and the refinement and France was considered, you know, the top of the etiquette chain. And so he was still in charge of state dinners and events, even with the new administration, everything except family dinners. But Monsieur Verdun, type A, and Lyndon Johnson, type A, had a very spicy relationship. (laughs) This reminds me so much, if you've ever seen The Great British Bake Off, Paul Hollywood, have you ever noticed that, okay, most of the time with male contestants, he like gets in their space, he tries to intimidate them, 
Mm-hmm. He puts his chest in. He like makes little comments. Occasionally, he'll get some major in the army or something that he can't intimidate. But LBJ is like Paul Hollywood all the time. <laughs> I'm just imagining him shaking hands. <laughs> you know what? Doesn't Paul Hollywood shake more men's hands on that show than women? I don't know. Somebody, somebody do a count. There's probably yeah. one online somewhere. Yeah, it's probably, no kidding. Nels' effort was managing two men, Lyndon Johnson, the president, and Chef Verdun. Who is technically also her boss. I mean, warring bosses is a hard place to be. I have been in this position. The two bosses hated each other, and I was their pawn. It is very uncomfortable. And doesn't help that the Johnsons had, let's call it an aesthetic, which was more basic than Mrs. Kennedy. And... (laughs) The Johnsons asked Verdun to sometimes bring out some of that old down-home magic. Down-home magic that he didn't know how to make. And he called chili con queso chili concrete. He was not a fan. What a funny guy. I know, right? But that's what the Johnsons wanted. And actually, their very first official state dinner wasn't even in the White House. It was down in Texas with the German chancellor and it was held in a school gymnasium because the weather was bad, but it was true Texas barbecue from the checkered tablecloths to the mariachis and the classical pianist. And it was catered by Walter Jetton, who was a barbecue master who often catered meals down in Texas for the Johnson family. But it's pinto beans and spare ribs, coleslaw, fried apricot pies, all things that Chef Verdun was not going to make. You could hear the sneer all the way from from <laughs> Texas. He's like, one does not serve barbecue to women wearing white gloves. Well, one does, dude. One does, said Johnson. I don't know what one, because I do. And I'm the biggest one. How about that? If we're having a swinging contest, if you know what I mean. And he did like to do that. Yeah. I'll link you to an article. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so our old favorite, the Perdinellas chili, was now famous all over the nation. Though I'm sorry to say that Lady Bird Johnson got all the credit. It was billed as Lady Bird Johnson's Perdinellas River Chili. And so many people wrote in, I want this recipe for this famous chili, that her office decided to release it on little cards. And her secretary was very concerned because <laughs> Southern chefs... And cooks are known for leaving out a key ingredient. That is a technique called giving someone a recipe instead of a recipe. Mm -hmm. And so they were very worried that, because Lady Bird Johnson, this isn't her chili. This is, in fact, Zephyr Wright's chili. Was Zephyr Wright going to pony up and give them the right recipe? And sure enough, it was revealed there is... A super secret local ingredient that was not listed on the card. And you and I, we are children of Super Bowl microwave queso. (laughs) And queso was still a new concept. And we have to remember that Rotel was only available in Texas for a couple of decades. Yeah, the secret ingredient is not crushed tomatoes. You put Rotel in. Mm -hmm. So she did give the nation a recipe. But once that was revealed, And Rotel even puts this on their website. That revelation was what made Rotel go nationwide and gave you and I the fabulous, tasty, convenient treat we have today. (laughs) There was another ingredient that was obviously missing to a lot of people. 
It was beans. Like, um, does the president just not like beans? This was a huge thing. (laughs) Texas chili is beanless, and America didn't know that. It's based on the Mexican dish chili con carne, which is chili peppers with meat, not chili con frijo, which would be beans. Chili con carne was a very, very local dish. Back in Texas, the San Antonio Chili Queens, basically vendors that had street carts, pots of chili that they would sell on the street with tortillas uh, to passersby, were famous for this kind of chili. And so I wanted to read you a quote of a tourist from Fort Scott, Kansas, near to where we're recording this. And he had gone to San Antonio for the first time and wrote home to his mother with the following information in 1873. Speaking of hot things, at San Antonio, they have a dish called chili con carne. It is of Mexican origin, and it's composed of beef, peas, gravy, and red pepper. It's awful seductive looking and gives the fellow the idea that what he's got is something like hash. They always have enough to go around for no stranger, no matter how terrific a darn fool he is, ever calls for a second dish. He almost always calls for a big cistern full of water, and you can't put the water in him fast enough with a steam engine hose. (laughs) So that's the real Texas chili. (laughs) Nice. There's no beans. And people were writing to the White House. What's wrong with beans? Does the president not like beans? There was some spin control having to be done about these beans not being in the chili recipe. Zephyr, I cannot imagine this conversation, had to go on the radio and give an interview. This was a 15 minute long interview. We can link you to the transcript where she has to talk about like, oh, he likes some lima beans and occasionally I'll feed him. You know, it's like, really? She's on the radio talking about, yes, he does, just not in his chili. That's right. And he had pinto beans with nearly every meal, she said. He liked to doctor them up with his hot sauce. So yes, the president does like beans, just not in that chili. I really, really miss the day when all we had to worry about was which vegetable people (laughs) do or do not like. I hearken back to those days with great fondness. So a lot of these things like chili con concrete that the French chef didn't want to make and all the economies that LBJ wanted to bring to the kitchen, like we can get frozen at a deal. We are wasting so much money in this place. Get the frozen vegetables, bring them in. And it angered the French chef. Like, I am not going to be cooking frozen crap. My name is on this. It didn't help that anytime LBJ wanted something and Verdun did not feel like making it or didn't know how to make it, LBJ, knowing full well how to twist the knife, would look this famous French chef right in the eye and say, go upstairs and get Zephyr to teach you how to make this. Oh, to the moon, Verdun! (laughs) And so Zephyr, poor Zephyr, had a series of uncomfortable conversations with this chef. And after a while, Zephyr had kind of had enough of this. She approached her boss, LBJ, and asked for a significant raise. He's like reading the paper and acting like he isn't paying attention. And she's going to talk to him anyway, because she's had up and she is on fire and she's had enough of this man. Isn't it funny? That you have a chef and you won't even need his cooking. I have to teach him how to feed you. If I'm capable of teaching him, I'm capable of getting his salary. And he couldn't argue it. So she got it. Yeah. um, Not only her, but her husband both got a raise. So Verdun, scandalized about economies, arguments, having to be taught these unrefined dishes by a 
person that he didn't respect, all kinds of things were making him very dissatisfied with his job. Like this was definitely not the Kennedy White House, the glorious past that he had just experienced. The last straw was a special request from the president. And all the sources refer to it as cold garbanzo bean puree, which I can only guess is hummus, um, which isn't as weird as you would think because LBJ had a lot of Israeli contact and guests at his house and that kind of thing. And he did try often to make guests comfortable in his house. So I wouldn't think it would be too weird that once upon a time in the past, some of his guests had taught him about hummus. Mm -mm. But I don't know why nobody says hummus. I looked for any other kind of cold garbanzo bean puree. Yeah, Uh, I did too, because I'm like, what the heck is that? That sounds disgusting. And then I realized, oh, it's hummus. (laughs) Let me get some, you know, it sounds good in that carrots. (laughs) Isn't that what you have your hummus with? Carrots and celery? No? Oh, um, I just eat it. Like if, if I'm low carbing, I just eat it on cucumber slices. Oh, yeah, it's good. Well, LBJ wanted the White House cuisine to reflect the world and the real world, frankly. And the chef gave his notice. That was it. That was absolutely it. And they didn't have a new one on deck. About a month of Zephyr at the helm. White House life was stressful enough for Zephyr. She was on duty from breakfast through past midnight some nights. And I don't think she lived in. I think she had a house away from the premises. And the only reason I think that is in the White House diary, it said dropped off package at home of Zephyr Wright. Mm -hmm. So why would they need to do that on the way back from somewhere? If she lived in the White House, you could just walk upstairs. So um, that's a very, very long schedule. And the president kept up and amplified his antics. Breakfast meeting for 25 tomorrow, sir. We find out at midnight. Mm -hmm. 10 powerful men are going to meet us for lunch upstairs in 10 minutes. Uh, You know, I hope you're ready. Okay, Zephyr, we're going to come at eight. No, nine. No, 11. Why is this food cold? Ah, so she was already kind of in a grumpy place. She had had to kind of get the the White House butler staff in her scenario of liquoring people up while she made an hors (laughs) d'oeuvre. (laughs) that's what would happen they'd show up and she'd say oh i guess i have to feed these people she'd tell the butlers just give them some sherry and she would make a shrimp cocktail which doesn't need to be cooked if you have the shrimp already cooked you can make that really fast and quarts of cocktail sauce already made and while they were eating that she would fix maybe a steak she'd butterfly it so it would cook faster she had a lot of tricks for feeding all these people you know at the drop of a hat She was ready. So she did have her strategy down, but it was stressful every single time. And now there was no White House chef. Chef Verdun had given his notice. He had left the building and his replacement had not yet been hired. You know, there's a big vetting process when you're hiring a new White House executive chef. I think that is interesting that there is such a giant vetting process, but then there's a vacuum and they just ask Zephyr to step into it. <laughs> <laughs> Zephyr, Zephyr, who had no vetting process other than that 15 minute interview to get this job. Well, and she'd been around for 21 yep, years. Yep. I mean, she had had a VIP seat at his inauguration when he was reelected with 61% of the vote. Like she is front and center in the Mm -hmm. VIP section. So he has faith in her that she can do it. 
And I will say that at one point near the end of that month, he came down to the kitchen and found her asleep face down on a table. And in many workplaces, that might get you fired. But instead, he started whispering to the Secret Service, get a camera, get a camera. (laughs) And people were too loud and tripped over something and woke her up. And he almost never forgave them for that (laughs) because he wanted a camera. Like, see, in this day and age, you know, Obama would slip out his little phone and just be like, but would he? Because I don't think he's that mean. I don't don't think he would have taken the picture. I don't know. Maybe if it was Michelle. Uh, so anyway, that's their relationship. She's <laughs> yeah. overwhelmed, overworked, and falling asleep on a table, and, and he thinks it's hilarious. But there was a Swiss chef uh, that he had liked. He had stayed at the Ambassador Hotel once. That's a good recommendation. So Henry Heller was brought in and took the pressure off of Zephyr. But in a move that I found probably the most impressive of this entire era, Zephyr decided that it was time for her to get yet another raise because, after all, she had seniority. She should be getting paid more than Chef Haller, and she got it. He tried it, though. LBJ, you didn't put in for the executive job, though. I mean, you both knew that the world is not ready for that, right? I mean, (laughs) surely they both knew that, but he wanted to mess with her. Well, unmovable object... Meet irresistible force. The silence grew thick. (laughs) She got her raise. Yes, she did. Chef Heller got along with everyone much better than old Verdun. I mean, you'd almost have to. I don't know that the bar was very high, but he got along so much better with everyone. Zephyr, LBJ, I think it was really good. But I was a little taken aback that both Linda and Lucy got married and she did not cook either of the dinners. And so I had wondered about that and I couldn't find information on this. But since she had been a VIP guest at the inauguration, maybe she was a valued guest at the wedding. That's, yeah, I didn't even think to look into it because that's what I just assumed. Well, and my husband is a caterer and he actually made a giant mistake of trying to be in a wedding and cater a wedding. Oops. And the photos went long and, you know, you never saw so much stress. Like me and my brother (laughs) had to do the whole like sterno, sterno, stir, sterno, stir. Like (laughs) that's as much catering as I ever want to do in my whole entire life. (laughs) So, yes, surely you wouldn't want to have both roles. She did make most of their birthday cakes. So I think that is a little more personal of a thing. Mm. And they were so close. There's so many pictures of them where they are having a celebration for her or hugging her or as little kids playing in the garden with her. And she'd always been there their entire growing up lives. She was so close to those children. And of course, Zephyr and Sammy never had children of their own. And, you know, I just have to say this. We... We do have the same problem with covering Zephyr's life that we did with Elizabeth Keckley and Mary Todd Lincoln in another episode. So much of the information that we have about these women has two filters through their white employers and through the White House. So where did she go to church? What made Sammy laugh? What did she do with her days off? Who was her favorite author? Was she close to her siblings? We don't know. So I don't want to get bogged down here. So we can line back up. But I just wanted to acknowledge that we know we are only scratching the surface of Zephyr's existence as a person. What we're covering 
in the White House seems to be the cozy and the ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I found a picture and I'll put it on the show notes. It was at one of a, a birthday party. I think it was Zephyr's birthday party. And Lucy's there and you could tell she's making a joke because Zephyr's laughing. But if you look in the background of this picture, I think it's Chef Verdant standing with his arms crossed in the corner, just scowling at them. <laughs> I'll put a well, big red arrow on it and put it in the show notes and give a look to it and see if you agree with me. <laughs> well, the whole family really depended on her. I mean, Ladybird depended on her to help manage her husband. The kids were just like in love, you know, with her. And LBJ even depended on her. He hated when she had a day off. He came downstairs one day after her day off and he said, I have to tell you, you have to go show those people how to make your seafood salad. I had a scoop of that and I've been sick all day. And she looked at him a long time trying to decide if she should tell him something that she had kept a secret for almost <laughs> 20 years now. And she finally said it. I make my mayonnaise out of mineral oil for the calories. Mineral oil and lemon juice. There was a long <laughs> pause. And you don't want to go having more than one scoop of that, she said. And the raucous laughter that came out of that kitchen because LBJ loves him a poop joke. <laughs> So, you know, I just thought that was like a little window into their friendship here toward the end. Yeah, no, I loved it. Zephyr was still leaving her love notes. Remember the nutritional labels that she put on a card underneath his plate so he'd know exactly what he was eating. One of those he kept in his pocket. He carried it around with him. And it said this, Mr. President, you've been my boss for a number of years and you always tell me you want to lose weight. And yet you never do very much to help yourself. Now I'm going to be your boss for a change. Eat what I put in front of you. Don't ask for any more and don't complain. <laughs> okay. He loved that so much. He carried it around. He transferred it from pants pocket to pants pocket on purpose. He loved it. Like the velveteen rabbit. <laughs> the raggedier it got, the better he loved it. And then in the future, after this, anytime people would get after him about being egotistical or full of himself, he would whip that raggedy note out and say, how full of ego could a guy be exactly whose staff talks to them like this? When I feel an arrogance of power, Zephyr will take it right out of me. <laughs> I love the whole story about that. Zephyr was a witness to the backstage action for a lot of Johnson's achievements. Medicare, Medicaid, funding for education, and Ladybird's conservation and America Beautiful movements, pollution reduction. But maybe instead of just being a witness to the action, Zephyr had the greatest influence on the 1964 Civil Rights Act that is possibly LBJ's most famous achievements. Johnson had to work pretty hard to get it passed, but he used Zephyr's stories, stories about being denied hotel rooms and dinners, stories about her traveling through the South, stories about the difficulty of her getting an ambulance. He used all of those stories to convince people that this act needed to get passed, that this is what is happening in America. So when he sat down to sign this bill into law, Lyndon Johnson said, 
We believe that all men have certain unalienable rights, yet many Americans do not enjoy those rights. We believe that all men are entitled to the blessings of liberty, yet millions are being deprived of those blessings, not because of their own failures, but because of the color of their skin. All of their conversations had to have an effect over all those decades of medium plain speaking (laughs) on Zephyr's part. How does their relationship change him? You know? Well, he kind of gave an example of it when he handed her one of the pens that he had used to sign the Civil Rights Act. And he said to her, Zephyr, you deserve this more than anyone else. What happened to that pen? Where is the pen? I know. I wondered the same thing. Artifacts of history that are in a drawer someplace. I I want to say that the Johnson Library has it somewhere. I really do. (laughs) Well, there was another act the next year, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because the first one was more like public accommodation. And this one removed barriers to voting that had been put up by the states. And she was there for that, too. She's standing just a few people away from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. while he's signing it. So those are two very, very big achievements. So there's good Johnson. And once more, when she was 52, LBJ appointed Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, the first Supreme Court justice of color. And he came right home (laughs) to Zephyr. Did you see? Did you see? And then she said, oh, did that go through? So casual. Because LBJ said, this is bad Johnson, sorry. You know, when I appoint an N, I want everyone to know I did it. Bad Johnson. So do you think, LBJ, that Zephyr doesn't hear you talking through the kitchen door? I mean, no wonder she takes the air out of your sails. (laughs) Okay, wait, here's this. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to line it up a minute (laughs) because that did suck (laughs) that I found that out. I was real mad. (laughs) Um, But the first African-American presidential secretary her name is Geraldine Whittington, LBJ decided he wanted to reveal on a game show called What's My Line, where somebody would come on and the panel would ask questions trying to decide what line of work the person was in. And that is literally how he announced. So he really wants people to know when he does a thing like that. That's, that is how much he needs feedback. I'm just saying. <laughs> So um, so there's some good and some bad, and I've got a swizzle stick and I'm stirring the whole swimming pool. I just don't know. I don't know <laughs> what is happening with his behaviors. But as we know, speaking of behaviors, LBJ had the Vietnam War during his term. Uh, public opinion was at the least thumbs down, you know, if not antagonistic toward him. And he decided not to run for a second term. When he was first inaugurated president, LBJ had told Zephyr that it was just going to be one year. We're just going to finish out Kennedy's term and that's it. Then he ran again and won. And she was very happy about it because she thought he was the best president that America has ever had. So she was happy. But he had this chance to do it again. And when he decided not to, he went to her and he said, well, Zephyr, at least we're going home. Are we? She had a little bit of bad news for him. Zephyr decided not to move with the family. It had been... 27 years, it it was time. And the White House, while glorious and impressive and a chance in a lifetime, it had taken a lot out of her. She said she'd gained 80 pounds 
She lost months of sleep. She'd been juggling and contriving and trying to get along. And, and it was time to say goodbye. You know, Sammy was very ill also, and she just wanted to concentrate on him, uh, enjoy life and retire and nothing against anything. This is just a natural break. I'm going to stay here in Washington, D.C. And he said to her, it won't be the same without you. And of course, she had to come back for that. She said, well, I guess I always thought you'd be here. And she said the whole thing, though, it was just like losing a family. But it's what he wanted to do. So the Johnsons packed up and moved to Texas. And Zephyr and Sammy stayed in Washington. And I'm very sorry to tell you that Sammy, her husband, died very shortly after Zephyr was free to spend time with him. He did. He was so sick over Christmas and, you know, he died not not too far into 1969. Now, Zephyr did stay in Washington, but part of her kind of went back to Texas with the Johnsons. LBJ didn't handle the transition very well. He kind of spiraled into a depression. He had possibly his third heart attack. He gained weight and he needed to lose it again. He was just really grumpy. And his daughter, Lucy, came to check in on him and see if there's anything that she could do for him. He said he was missing some of his favorite foods and your mother doesn't cook. And Zephyr got all uppity and left me. Well, Lucy channeled Zephyr and mouthed right back. Zephyr got uppity and left you? And she set him straight. She said, Daddy, Zephyr told me that I could either get out of the kitchen and learn to cook. What is it that you want? I can make it. So right after Lucy got married, Zephyr actually held little classes to change her how to cook. (laughs) I love that, though. So she could help out her dad. She could bring Zephyr's recipes down to Texas. Although I very much put uppity in the bad Johnson category. That is not an acceptable word. Yeah. And I think that Lucy definitely called him out on it. So Zephyr became quite the fixture in Washington, D.C. She kept to herself. She never had another job. I don't think she really needed one. Uh, If I did the calculations correct, by the end of the Johnson administration, I think she was making $78,000 a year. I mean, adjusted, you know. Mm -hmm. She had some put by and saved, and um, she turned up at some high-profile events. (laughs) At a celebration for Barbara Jordan, who was the first Southern Black woman to be elected to the House of Representatives from the great state of Texas in 1972. There was an article in the paper afterward that suggested that fully half the people that were there were there to see Zephyr, not to see Barbara. Yeah, Zephyr was so famous. Um, Everyone was very delighted to have her there. She was known as she got older for her wry sense of humor and what was called a powerfully dignified manner. On April 23rd, 1988, 73-year-old Zephyr Black Wright died from heart disease at George Washington Hospital in Washington, D.C. I'm afraid I don't know where she's buried because I couldn't find her grave. Find a grave has everybody, but they don't have Zephyr Wright. So there's a quest for you. Locate Zephyr and Sammy. So that brings us to the end of the life of Zephyr Wright, who I honestly had not really heard of before I read a book. One of the books I'm going to recommend introduced me to her. And so she'd been kind of in the back of our minds for a while. Luckily, we were able to get some books out of the library before they shut down. But I will tell you that most of my Lady Bird Johnson biographies are trapped in the Plaza Library on the whole shelf. 
Oh no! They sent me a note like, "We still have them. Don't worry, <laughs> we still." I'm like, "Yes, they aren't as useful to me right now because they're trapped in your facility." That's right. Okay, so let us start the media section in our classic fashion with books and the book that started it all here at the Zephyr Wright Research Laboratory. <laughs> um, is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first family from the Washingtons to the Obamas by an author named Adrian Miller. He also has a history of soul food that he has written called The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. And both of those books would be spectacular reading for fans of Zephyr Wright after you've heard this episode. Mm -hmm. I love The President's Kitchen Cabinet. I thought that was a great, fun read. And it had recipes in it. I love books that have recipes that aren't cookbooks. I mean, I love cookbooks. I, I read cookbooks, too. I don't know if that's like super cookie nerdy, but just a regular book. You're reading, you're reading, and all of a sudden there's a recipe. Yes. Or is there a recipe? Oh, good question. Adrian Miller also has a website that we will link you up to in the show notes. So you might find some information on there as well. So uh, in addition to that, there is a book called Lady Bird Johnson White House Diary, which is nothing more than a behind the scenes, day to day, little life behind the curtain. As far as Lady Bird Johnson goes, there's also a book called Lady Bird Johnson, an oral history edited by Michael Gillette. And what it is, is the transcripts of interviews with her. And there's kind of some differences between the diary and the transcripts. The stories differ just a little bit. So I think it's kind of fun to read them both and go, okay, which one's right? <laughs> you know. And a lot of times when you're talking on the fly, you just want to come up with an answer, you know? Yes. Like yeah. What I loved about this book too Lady Bird really surprised me. I liked her so much. And the cover of this book, she's sitting in a deck chair on a boat. The chair says First Lady on it. Mm -hmm. She has her heels on on a boat. But one of her shoes is like half flipped off and she's holding onto her sunglasses and she's just casual. It's like she's the First Lady, but she's got shoe half on. Very real. Uh, there's another book called The Residence Inside the Private World of the White House by Kate Anderson Brower. And it talks about the White House staff kind of pulls back the curtain, showing that presidents, you know, are just real people. And then the two biographies that actually made it into my house <laughs> and are not trapped in the library like the rest of them. They sent me a note that says, we still have your books on hold. Don't worry, we're not going to reshelve them. So I'm going to get, <laughs> you know, whatever, five to seven Lady Bird Johnson books when I break out of quarantine. Lady Bird, a biography of Mrs. Johnson by Jan Jarbo Russell. And also Lady Bird and Lyndon by Betty Boyd Caroli. So those are the two, and you just kind of glean information from mentions in those books, so you can't rely on them for biographical details. That was what was kind of different about this episode. There's no Zephyr Wright biography, so we had to go through all of that and quite a few databases looking for information. I would like to thank my friend Rachel, who is a research librarian in New York, and she kind of was holding my hand through some that I was having a really hard time finding. I love librarians. I'm making a heart with my hands. Speaking of databases, there are a couple of resources that are housed on discoverlbj.org that you can search through. One is the White House Daily Diary. And the second one, which is just 
a joy is transcripts of interviews given by both Lady Bird Johnson and Zephyr Wright in audio form during the years of the presidency and afterward. And you can search by the term Zephyr, which online is not going to always bring back Zephyr Wright. It might bring back a train, a Marvel superhero, or infinite other Zephyrs. But if you search this database, you're always going to get the one Zephyr. Ooh, actually, there's a train. The train does come up. (laughs) I think a couple times, but mostly it's our Zephyr. So you can get a lot of little things there because what they have there is the day-to-day diary kept by the White House secretaries of everything minute by minute that LBJ and Lady Bird do in a day. And like even to the point of, you know, drove by Zephyr Wright's house to leave package or told Zephyr Wright um, she wanted this at the menu or whatever. And it's like a little picture of how much she was involved in their life. So neat. Loved it. The LBJ Library is in Austin, Texas. Uh, When they open back up again, obviously they're not open now. They do have a lot of information online for you to nerd out on everything LBJ. One thing I liked on that website is his speech about the Selma March. Um, So there's like all kinds of things where you can get pictures of good Johnson. Um, another thing that they had on that site that when I I had seen it before, because I'm a communications major in college and they showed it to us, but I showed it to my family. He had had an ad that was run one time on television. It's called the Daisy ad. And it's so impactful. There's a little girl and an atom bomb. And my family all wanted to watch it. So we'll link you up to that, too. Now, if you feel like you should see the other side of the coin and catch yourself a little bit of bad LBJ, just for a 360 picture. There is an article that I found on MSNBC, Lyndon Johnson, Civil Rights and Racism. And I have another one that I found in the Atlantic. So we will link you up to both of those. Also, the proof of our choice of Perdinalis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Exactly. From the National Park. <laughs> um, the Origin of Chile from Texas Monthly I have. Also, Bill Moyers had a movie about Marshall, Texas that was called Marshall, Texas, Marshall, Texas, meaning it's two whole different towns. One is black and one is white, but they're supposed to be the same place. Um, so there's a link to the video of that. Also, you can hear Zephyr's own personal voice on NPR. Um, on the Kitchen Sisters. Also, our friend Susie at Cookery by the Book has an interview with the author of the Kitchen Cabinet Book on her podcast. Yeah, Adrian did a lot of press. <laughs> he did a good job. I, re- I found him very interesting to listen to. Oh, wait, there is one more. There is a personal blog from a woman whose mother's name is Zephyr, but spelled differently, Z-E-P-H-E-R. And she is the one that tracked down those census records. And for that, I am so grateful because it is really hard. And it's almost like it would be easier, I can't believe I'm saying this, to have the microfiche, you know, and, and be able to page through because the census records on your laptop are just nearly impossible to navigate. Mm-hmm. And so I tried and tried to go further. And so uh, hats off to Mariah Zephyr at blogspot.com because otherwise I would not have found that information. Ancestry.com also, if you remember, has a lot of upgraded features that you can get those 
census records to look at. I don't have anything else. So I would like to end our coverage today with a letter that accompanied a gift that Lyndon Johnson once gave Zephyr for 24 years of service at this time and for putting up with him for so long. And it says, for my very dear friend Zephyr, who for 24 very, very long years has given her all in intelligence, energy, devotion, and loyalty, all of which is duly reciprocated. With love, Lyndon B. Johnson. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, can you do us a favor and share this episode with a friend that you think would like it? Maybe a good cook or someone that just loves queso? Whatever you think. Or any episode that you think they would like, that would help us a lot. Join us yourself in the lounge where the themed quarantine baking exhibition has now become a permanent part of our landscape. To join, just find us on Facebook and click join group. Answer a question and you're in. Links to the things we talked about today and a copy of the famous Perdinalis River chili recipe can be found at thehistorychicks.com. The song in the middle is Slow Cookin' by Joe and the Spicy Pickles. And the end song is called Pillsbury Cookie Dough by Paul and Storm. Why did I pick that song? Well, the Pillsbury Doughboy was invented during Zephyr's time in the White House. We need some humor in our lives right now. And I think that both President Johnson and Zephyr Wright would have liked this song a lot. It's four in the morning, you sneak out of bed. Tiptoe down the stairs Go to the kitchen Leave off the light The Pillsbury cookie dough's waiting there Yeah, you open the door Take the tube in your hand Get the scissors down from the shelf